I'm Farai Chidea, and this is Our Body Politic. Take a deep breath. Oh yeah, it is go time for American democracy. Tens of millions of people, including more than half the number who voted in 2016, have already cast their ballots. On this show, we're bringing you a black female doctor in Michigan who questioned an officer not wearing a mask. She talks us through how she dealt with that and the deeper questions it brought up for her. Workers' rights icon Dolores Huerta. She talks about what she's still doing for society at the age of 90 and how she makes time for adventure. And Erin Haynes of the 19th, our go-to on all things political. She waited hours to vote in Philadelphia, and she wants you to know why that should make everyone mad. But first, let's talk about our courts. Just 40 days after the death of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a new Supreme Court justice was appointed to fill her seat. With a 52 to 48 vote, Senate Republicans confirmed Amy Coney Barrett. In a single term, President Donald Trump has appointed three of the nine judges that sit on the Supreme Court, and the Trump administration has appointed roughly a quarter of federal judges on the bench. Alexis McGill-Johnson is president of Planned Parenthood Action Fund. She's had the political battle over the courts front of mind. Thanks for joining us, Alexis. Thank you so much for having me, Fry. So let's just keep it real. You know, we have uh, a newly confirmed Supreme Court justice. She has not said what she is definitively going to do, but seems unlikely to be a big champion of reproductive rights. Do you and your colleagues at Planned Parenthood feel the despair that a lot of other people are feeling, or are you feeling inspired to action, or what's going on? First, I would say that the majority of Americans still believe that Roe should be the law of the land. We're talking 77% of Americans. And what we have in Justice Barrett now is the culmination of a series of power grabs based on rules changes from Senator McConnell and the Trump administration to rush through a uh, Supreme Court nominee that is quite contrary to where most Americans sit. And so where we sit is certainly very concerned. There are about 17 cases that are in the pipeline. They're literally one step away from the Supreme Court that could create further burdens or limit access to abortion, if not outright overturn Roe. And so we are obviously incredibly concerned, but even more concerned that we're in a situation in our democracy where the rules of the game have shifted away from the majority of the people. And that's actually just dangerous in a democracy. So you're the president and CEO of Planned Parenthood Federation of America and the Planned Parenthood Action Fund. And in the Action Fund hat, one of the things that that organization or that part of your larger organization has been doing is advocating for appointment of federal judges. And so get a little deeper into this whole question of how you interact with the whole process of who becomes a federal judge and, of course, then how that affects policy. Yeah, well, I mean, over the last four years, what we've seen is uh, an expedition of the number of judges that between Senator McConnell and President Trump, they've confirmed over 215 incredibly conservative judges to lifetime appointments on the federal bench. And, you know, these judges that will sit at the circuit court, at the appeals court, 
at least 10 of them have been considered completely unqualified by the American Bar Association. One judge, at least, has been very vocal in similar language to Judge Justice Barrett around um, IVF, feeling that that is uh, an unnatural process. And I think that, you know, the, where we engage is we, you know, we continue to support the both the research to help our Senate colleagues understand what is at stake as they are doing their confirmation process. The reality is they've been very successful in shifting the the rules change so that, you know, we used to be able to filibuster bad judges and now uh, Senator McConnell changed the rules so a very simple majority, um, which is what they held over the last few years that that has allowed them to rush through the number of appointments that they've made. And that's, you know, again, it's harmful to democracy. It's harmful to into how we should be governing. And that's really um, bottom line what's at stake here. What would you see as differences between, say, a Trump second term and a Biden first term since so much has already happened in the appointment of federal judges and with the Supreme Court? Look, in uh, Vice President Biden and Senator Harris, we know we have champions of uh, sexual and reproductive freedom. We know that they will be committed to everything from repealing Hyde to identifying ways legislatively to support legislation that can help us codify Roe um, federally. And I think those are the opportunities that we have. The Biden administration also has a ton of work to do. You know, the ACA is on the line uh, next month, literally um, uh, almost uh, just a few short weeks from now. And so the other things that help us ensure reproductive freedom and um, access to gender equality can also be stripped away if the ACA is ruled unconstitutional. Things like having our birth control, you know, covered under the ACA, ensuring that gender discrimination doesn't happen. We don't pay more for our health care than than men. Those are the sorts of things that I think can be um, incredibly impactful under a Biden administration that um, would be exciting. I think under a Trump administration, we're already living the fear, right? We're, we're living the fear of both uh, a Supreme Court that now, he, where he's appointed three of nine judges, um, cementing that conservative majority. We are already seeing, uh, we've been forced out of Title X, the nation's uh, oldest and largest family planning program, limiting access to, you know, family planning in rural areas and low-income communities. And our response to it is, you know, to continue to fight, to continue to um, you know, engage our 16 million supporters and demonstrate what's at stake. And if we have to do that state by state, because that's where the fights will turn now in the state legislatures. And tell us a little bit about what Planned Parenthood does that a lot of people might not know about, including providing some health services to men and to the LGBT community, et cetera. Absolutely. Look, Planned Parenthood is first and foremost a healthcare provider, right? and we provide all range of sexual and reproductive health. We do a lot of sexual education outreach, and you know, and part of that education is also to our, you know, to our legislators um, to ensure that we have robust policies that uh, that ensure that we're building access, more access to healthcare than less. You know, I mean, we have to remember that we're in a moment today where, you know, we've just seen the every day is the next highest day of um, of new COVID transmissions. You know, over 225,000 Americans have died in this last, you know, seven months of the pandemic. And the idea that in 30 days, the Senate could come together and rush through this nomination and not rush through COVID relief bill, not rush through a COVID testing bill, not focus on the comprehensive policies around healthcare uh, that are potentially bankrupting families. Like these are the kinds of things that as a public healthcare voice, 
And if we are not out there yelling and screaming about about what's happening in healthcare broadly, then we're not doing our service. Well, Alexis McGill-Johnson, it's been great talking to you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ray. Alexis McGill-Johnson is president of the Planned Parenthood Action Fund. Women of Color for Progress trains women who want to run for public office at all levels of government. Co-founders Karen Coronel and Amanda Farias joined to tell us more. Hi, Karen. Hi. Hi, Amanda. Hi. So, Amanda, let me start with you. You are an elected office holder, and we're going to get to that victory in a moment. But you also ran for city council in your home district in the Bronx, and you didn't win. But um, you were motivated. And tell us what motivated you and why you stepped up. Yeah, I was, you know, someone that came back to the Bronx after working on Obama's re-election campaign in 2012, um, realizing that all of the inequities and all of the things that were really important to me um, that were happening on a large scale federally were also happening on a hyper-local level. I just saw the gaps that were happening in our communities of misinformation or people really lacking social safety net and services and resources. Um, and that is what pushed me to step up. So um, so I lost in 2017 and realized that the community need, wanted new leadership. There was a state committee position that had an, an elected there that hadn't shown up for a meeting since the year 2000. Um, and so I took that as an opportunity to, to continue pushing back against the establishment. Um, and I won just by 86 votes. So what I get to do, fortunately, is be that middle person between the assembly uh, member and the local community members and really fighting for party reform, help democracy, small d democracy um, work for people is, is my job. And Karen, as another co-founder of Women of Color for Progress, tell us how the organization trains and supports women and also how you got involved. Yeah, uh, it was a group of us working in different levels of city uh, government, (laughs) and we were motivated uh, by the 2016 election and also just everything we had seen within working in government and elected politics. Um, we wanted change. We wanted more representation. And we came together and felt uh, that women of color really needed to be at the forefront of that representation. And Amanda, I'm just going to wrap up with you. So since you have run for office um, and you know what it's like and what the emotional journey is and how much time it takes, what would you say to someone who was your age and who was like, yeah, I'd like to help my community but I'm not sure about this whole running for office thing. Yeah, I would say that it's okay to feel that way and that there are many levels um, to get involved. Find something that you really are passionate about, whether it's climate emergency, um, whether it's equal pay, whether it's um, you know economic development and growth in communities or you know reproductive rights, find the thing that you care about and take that first step in trying to organize around that issue. Um, and then I would say you won't know it's not for you unless you join a campaign. Like your, your expertise is needed on every single campaign. So you have to figure out in all these little steps um, and all these little pieces to help you realize where you fit and how you wanna fit in, um, but there's room for everyone. 
Karen and Amanda. Thank you both so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Farai. That was Karen Coronel and Amanda Farias, co-founders of Women of Color for Progress. With the election upon us, we're going to keep talking about voting. Aaron Haynes is editor-at-large at the 19th News, and every week we bring you our conversation sipping the political tea. Welcome, Aaron. It's great to be back, of course. How are you hanging in the home stretch? Oh my gosh, Farai, how is anyone? This is this is it. I mean, you know, this is go time. This is crunch time. And, you know, it's just completely unpredictable and we have no idea what's going to happen. And there's a siren outside of my window. And maybe that is some sort of metaphor for where we are. I think that's actually an excellent metaphor. And, you know, it speaks a lot to... Um, the piece that you wrote about your own voting experiences. Now, both of us voted early in person, but that was always my voting plan. It was not yours. So why did you end up doing it and how did it go? So my plan was that I was going to, I requested a mail-in ballot and I was going to drop it off at a a drop-off location. But, you know, got down to the wire uh, here in, in Pennsylvania and my ballot had not arrived. And so I... I was one of the countless uh, people in Philadelphia County, which is, you know, the biggest county by state here, uh, who had to go and stand in line to cast their ballot, which I was fully prepared to do. I'm somebody who, you know, votes in every election, have been registered since three days after my 18th birthday. So I take voting very seriously. Uh, Went to a polling location not uh, too far from my apartment in my neighborhood, um, you know, and expected maybe to be there for for a while. I mean, we are in a pandemic and I know that there are precautions that have to be taken and I certainly understand that. But long story short, I emerged four hours later and that is the longest it has ever taken me to vote. I don't know that everybody that was in line had those four hours to to, to sacrifice uh, and they shouldn't have had to, even if they did. Uh, and, And not to mention the folks who, you know, may have walked by or driven by and seen that long line and said, you know what, forget it, you know, or I can't do this right now. I have other things, other priorities. I was alarmed to see that only three poll workers were at this location, not nearly enough people for the volume of of people who were clearly excited to participate in this election. I know, talking to voters, that they are very energized about participating. And so, you know, even as we're seeing that voter excitement, we are also seeing voter suppression and depression, uh, which makes me very concerned for, for Election Day. And when we talk about voter depression, we're not talking about voters that are just sad. We are talking, tell, tell us more about what that term no. means. I mean, voter depression, I mean, the, there's, there's a psychological impact uh, to voter suppression. And that is, you know, the thought that, you know, my vote doesn't matter, or my vote's not going to count, or it's not worth it. Or they see, you know, long lines like that, and they think, oh, well, you know, I don't, I don't want to do that. That's going to turn them away, which is why I think, frankly, for IUC, a lot of the activity to kind of serve as a counterweight to that, right? Like the music that's playing. There was a DJ at the precinct where I was. There were people passing out snacks, trying to keep people's spirits up and frankly, try to distract them from the debacle that was happening. While it's worth it, it it, it is completely unnecessary in a democracy in the 100th year of of suffrage and and 55 years after the Voting Rights Act that people are still waiting hours and hours uh, to vote is, is really just unconscionable in this country. And there's clear evidence, documentation that it, you're more likely to be in a long, multi-hour line if you're a person of color. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, what, what really 
hopefully could be the catalyst uh, for change uh, around the issue of voter access is the fact that there were, frankly, white people who were being disenfranchised in this way uh, this year, maybe even for the first time. Having this experience as a journalist has has really empowered me to to bear witness for, for people who are experiencing this far too often. You know, many people across this country are experiencing this in this moment should, should hopefully make them uh, speak out more about why this is wrong and why she, why we should all be rejecting the politics of voter suppression going forward. Well, Aaron, it's always great to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. Coming up. I do think that having Senator Kamala Harris be a graduate of an HBCU of Howard University in Washington, D.C., I think that is making a really large impression on students at HBCU campuses. This show is for you and about you, so we need to hear from you. Our platform, Speak, lets you leave anonymous feedback about what's on your mind. You can find a link to write us at farai.com slash OBP or call and leave a voicemail at 929-353-7006. That's 929-353-7006. The question right now is, what's the most important issue to you as a voter and why? Whether you've already voted or not, we want to know what motivates you. Thanks. Senator Kamala Harris's nomination put some shine on historically Black colleges and universities, their alumni networks, and their current students. Senator Harris is a Howard University grad, and she has shouted out her alma mater on the campaign trail, not to mention her sorority, Alpha Kappa Alpha, or AKA. We turn to Delise Smith-Barrow to tell us how HBCU students were mobilizing for the 2020 election. She's a senior editor for higher education at the Heckinger Report. For students at HBCUs, many of them first-time voters, they are making a decision about who is going to lead us through the next leg of this pandemic. I mean, that person, their number one task will be how do we move forward? I think right now it's, it's a big push on these campuses to make sure students are engaged with the voting process. They are following the political conversation so that they're not just kind of voting haphazardly or not voting at all, they are taking this quite seriously because it will have direct implications on their day-to-day life and just their long-term life. Could there be a Harris bump in HBCU voters this election? I do think that having Senator Kamala Harris be a graduate of an HBCU of Howard University in Washington, D.C., I think that is making a really large impression on students at HBCU campuses because They are seeing someone who they can relate to, who looks like them, who's walked in their shoes, who is this close to becoming vice president of the United States. So I think that is, I think her presence is definitely energizing those students in a way that we haven't really seen before. One thing that also makes Senator Kamala Harris stand out is that she's a member of Alpha Kappa Alpha, the first Black sorority for Black women. And so I think Her presence as an AKA has filtered down to Black Greek chapters on campus. Smith-Barrow says HBCU students and younger voters in general are really involved this election season. Sometimes there's a misconception that college students, they don't care as much about who's running, who to vote for, things like that. But I think in 2020 in particular, because we've seen how much the pandemic has really affected Black families. I think 
the students in HBCUs now truly get it and they do feel an urgency to vote, to make, try to make a difference with who will be in charge for the next four years. And Smith Barrow also says that colleges themselves actually have a lot at stake in this election. Right now, there is a lot of concern about whoever wins in November, how will they support HBCUs, you know, financially um, and in any way that, that they need it. A lot of HBCUs um, really do turn out a large number of Black lawyers, Black doctors, Black scientists, Black teachers. And because the student population, by and large, is not from terribly wealthy families, they're, they're coming to college needing um, maybe more financial aid, more scholarships, more grants, things like that. Their institutions are also just generally not as wealthy. So they have smaller endowments, for example. So you, they really do need an administration that's going to make sure that their funding is appropriate. That was Delise Smith-Barrow, Higher Education Editor at The Heckinger Report. I am so happy to welcome reporter Ruth Umo as a regular contributor to Our Body Politic. Ruth covers diversity and inclusion in the business world for Forbes magazine. And of course, we have to call this segment, Show Me the Money. Welcome, Ruth. Thank you for having me. One of your latest stories on Forbes was about how the pandemic is affecting Black business women specifically. And I've watched uh, people like my hairdresser be affected by lack of PPP funding and also the business had to close. I was even, I, I love her to bits and, and I just went to the hairdresser um, just this past weekend, but I initially was really cautious about even going back. But she didn't close and she pulled the rabbit out of the hat. But what's happening on a big scale with Black businesswomen? Very simply put, Black business women are hurting right now. Many of their businesses are sole proprietorships, meaning they don't have employees, but a growing number do have employees. They have part-time workers, they have contract workers, and they're providing access to jobs, skills training, and real career development opportunities in Black and brown communities where they intentionally position themselves. Despite this growth in entrepreneurial activity over the years, Black women already had a number of obstacles pre-pandemic, and much of those obstacles stemmed from a lack of access to capital. And then you fast forward to late February, March 2020, and we're now in the midst of a global pandemic that's slamming small businesses from the top, um, especially those owned by women and those by people of color. Who sits at that intersection? Black woman. But hasn't that been true for decades? Do we think anything is going to change now? And do you see a lot of the rhetoric of corporations embracing diversity actually moving into the world of investment in Black female entrepreneurs? I will take an optimistic approach to this. I think what's really changed here and what was really a pivotal moment was the murder or the death of George Floyd back in during the end of May. And so we saw this national reckoning and this call for um, action against racial injustice. And it really moved 
the corporate sector to take a stance to create corporate grants that target Black uh, entrepreneurs, that target Black female entrepreneurs. And it really made the business sector to ask themselves some really key questions and say, okay, what are we doing to help sustain Black and Brown entrepreneurs? So yes, I do think that there's certainly been a shift in how we approach this community in particular. Um, And I think that companies and investors as a whole, especially within the VC space, are beginning to understand um, the economic viability that Black women bring to the U.S. economy and to the business sector. Now, some may point to the PPP loans that were doled out a few months back as evidence that there is some support for Black entrepreneurs, but the reality is that very little went to those with the greatest need, as we've seen time and time again. Um, In fact, one survey found that just 12% of Black and Latinx business owners who applied for PPP loans reported receiving what they had asked for. And so this underscores kind of the fraught relationships that marginalized business owners have with major banks when trying to secure a loan, um, but also with the government as it stands. But I think that when we look at the private sector, we certainly are seeing corporate leaders who are standing up and who are at least beginning to put their money where their mouth is, literally. Yeah. Um, You know, I... I'm also very curious how we make sense of immigration in America. There are people um, who are immigrants themselves who are anti-immigration. There are certainly other people of color um, who are anti-immigration. But we read in an MIT article recently that immigrants are 80% more likely to start a business and the number of jobs started by immigrant-founded firms is 42% higher than for for firms uh, founded by people who were born in the U.S. So when we cover this whole question of people of color, women of color, and business, how does immigration fit into it and how does it fit into the nation? Yeah, well, I can certainly speak about this anecdotally uh, as someone who is a first-generation immigrant, Nigerian-American to be exact. I think that there's this false dichotomy that, you know, hiring or bringing in foreign talent somehow takes away from or removes the breadth of jobs that are available to Americans. And that's simply not the case. If anything, it's complementary. And so when we hear uh, about policies that tighten the requirements for, let's say, the H-1B visa, which specifically targets highly skilled foreign talent, or, or that's suspended altogether, it's very likely that it will have a damaging effect on entrepreneurship and really curtail the number of new startups and new small businesses over the long run, especially those in niche emerging fields. It's also likely that these federal restrictions will also stifle economic recovery and growth after the pandemic abates. Ruth, it's great to have you on the show, and I look forward to continuing our conversations. Likewise. Thanks so much for having me. That was Ruth Umo, business and economics reporter for Forbes and our body politic contributor. It's time for our weekly COVID update. Coronavirus infections continue to skyrocket in many states. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says more than 81,000 diagnosed cases were reported on Thursday. Johns Hopkins University says nearly 9 million people in the U.S. have been infected with the virus. 
Hospitalizations have also been going up for the past month. And unlike the first wave in the spring, which was mostly confined to a few epicenters, the virus is now everywhere, rural areas and cities nationwide. While COVID is still disproportionately impacting communities of color, there is more to the story. Mississippi's Black population was hit hard early on in the pandemic. Black Americans made up nearly three-quarters of the deaths there by April. Now, for the first time, more whites than Blacks are getting sick and dying of COVID. Mississippi's top health official said earlier this month that it comes down to how people of different races are choosing to protect themselves. We have had really pretty good uptake by a lot of folks in the Black community with masking. Big parts of... um, the white community, especially in areas that maybe weren't as hard affected, um, have not been as uh, compliant or engaged actively with social distancing and masking. And I think that does make a difference. We're also following the economic impact of the pandemic. A new study of census data by the National Women's Law Center found some shocking statistics. More than one in six Latinas and Black women don't have enough food, and more than half say they've lost income since March. Ariel Kina Pizarro told CBS News that she had to stop working after her grandfather died to take care of her three sons. I told him, if I don't have a job, if mommy's not working, mommy cannot bring food to the table. The study by the National Women's Law Center urges political action on a stimulus bill before things get even more dire. Talks about a next stimulus have been stalled and Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, a Democrat, just delivered a letter to Republicans listing the areas of disagreement. Now, political analysts say the prospect of a new stimulus before the election is grim. No small factor, Congress also has to vote on a new funding bill by December 11th, or the government will shut down. Tens of millions of Americans are already voting, and that means that our official election day on Tuesday is really just the last day to vote. The CDC emphasizes the need for voters to protect themselves and others at the polls. The agency says to wear a mask and social distance as much as possible, bring your own pen or stylus and hand sanitizer, but don't clean the voting machines yourself. It can damage them. And check your polling location before you go. It might have changed due to the pandemic. Coming up next. I started having flashes of Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, everyone. And I just said, Lord, the most important thing was for me to get home safe to my babies. women of color are taking exceptional measures to serve their communities and the nation, including our next guest. I am Dr. Ijeoma Nodim Opara. I am a double board certified internal medicine and pediatric physician. Dr. Nojim Opara, who's based in Michigan, got into a minor car accident recently. So no one was hurt and they all got out of their cars. I was coming home from work, so I was wearing my scrub. Then the police arrived. The officer approached her. I recognized that he wasn't wearing the mask. 
And, you know, we do have a mask mandate in Michigan. And just from a public health standpoint, to prevent the transmission of um, SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19 disease, we are supposed to be wearing masks and keeping that physical distance of at least six feet. So first of all, he was definitely coming in less than six feet and he wasn't wearing a mask. So I immediately said, oh, sir, please, could you put on your mask? And he said he was taken aback. And he said, no. And I said, no, please put on your mask. He said, we're outside. I started to feel my body tense up because this is a young white officer. We're in the middle of the freeway. The other couple was white. I started having flashes of Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, everyone. And I just said, Lord, okay. I I said, I know he can see my scrubs. (laughs) I know he can see all this get up. You know, I'm at least a healthcare professional, even if he doesn't think I'm a doctor. I finally said to myself, you know what? I don't want to aggravate this man. I don't know what will come out of the experience. In that moment, my intersectionality was very strong. I recognize I'm a Black woman. I recognize the the environment that we're in right now, politically, socially, culturally, economically as well, and that this will not be about public health. The most important thing was for me to get home safe to my babies right now. So I just complied with everything. I did not engage. I handed him my paper. I was just quiet got through everything and and left. Dr. Nojim Mapara said she felt heavy in her heart while she was driving away. She felt like she had to shut down the part of herself that's a doctor, the part that cares about frontline workers like herself and the police officer, who she calls her colleague. It brought home something she'd been thinking about since May. When George Floyd was, was murdered, I shut down for a couple of weeks. Like so many of my colleagues everywhere, we just shut down. And I just shut down. I was numb for a long time. And part of my processing was that it was just this like spiritual awareness of that I am not valued just because. I came here over 20 years ago. Folks have been here for over 500 years. And so my presence is just know how it is. <laughs> I, I learned Blackness in 19, <laughs> you know, 19, 1997, you know. Uh, the whole time I was just like Nigerian and Igbo. But, <laughs> but then you move here and you understand what racism, you understand what racism is. I've always been in that space, always been equity and justice spaces. I majored in African studies. I was president of ASA. I was like, you know, I was just like, I was always out there, rah, rah, let's do this. Black power, <laughs> black joy, black celebration. But I don't think I ever internalized what it meant to be viewed in every aspect of society in the very design of where you live, of your own country, as less than. It just took me out. That was Dr. Ijeoma Nojim Apara. Alice Wong is the founder and director of the Disability Visibility Project. 
They're a multimedia organization that does everything from tweeting to books to videos to let people with disabilities speak for themselves about politics and culture and more. And in 2015, Wong and two friends launched Crypt the Vote. They noticed that candidates on the campaign trail weren't talking very much about disability. So they live-tweeted one of the Democratic debates, and it went viral. Alice has a form of muscular dystrophy, and she wears a BiPAP machine, which helps her breathe. You'll hear it while we talk. I started this conversation by asking, how are you? I'm alive, Ryan. How are you? I'm good, Alice. And you know what? I've really been paying attention to the Crypt the Vote campaign, where you're, you've got all this stuff on social media, on Twitter, on TikTok. Um, I've been watching a lot of the court decisions coming down around things like when absentee ballots will be received um, and verified, you know, whether they can come in after Election Day or they have to arrive on Election Day. Things like court cases over whether you need medical permission to even vote absentee in some places. How do you, with disability, visibility, and crypt the vote, keep track of all of this? And what are you seeing? Well, there are definitely a few um, national disability organizations that are doing a lot of work in this area. The National Disability Rights Network, they have uh, agencies in every state that are pretty much monitoring you know, voting rights for people with disabilities. But really, um, for me, I think a lot of the news I hear is from actual people. I saw two of my friends with disabilities who are immunocompromised, where they really don't think their vote will be counted by absentee ballots. So they are actually risking their lives and going in person. And this is pretty enraging to the fact that so many people, not just people with disabilities, um, you know, have to risk their lives, have to, to wait a line in the rage, in, you know, all kinds of weather, but like for hours. And I think we kind of forget how, you know, not everybody has transportation, not everybody can stand or sit for hours outdoors. I mean, this is, you know, voters should be easy. Voters should be accessible. Voters should have, everybody should have lots of options on how they vote. And I think that's, you know, where we see the tightening of access because of the pandemic. There's so many issues that, you know, it reminds me of how important the courts are right now, that rights will be determined by the Supreme Court. And also there's rulings on the state level. In one case, a recent ruling that people with disabilities don't have a right to adopt. And so I'm just wondering, like, what you think about the issues that are going to come up in the courts? What's on your radar? Well, I think one of the biggest things, clearly, is about the Affordable Care Act. The ACA, if it is struck down, it's going to be the billions of disabled people, billions of chronically ill people, to be without health care. And this, not to be hyperbolic, this will result in death and suffering. And that, to me, is the reason why so many people 
especially mostly marginalized people, are legitimately afraid. This is a lot of trash, a lot of fear, and I think a lot of anxiety about the next four years. Some people have pointed out that if the Affordable Care Act goes away, that people with COVID will be considered to have had a pre-existing condition. And there are these people now being called long haulers who have chronic illness. Some of them are even kids. And do you think that in some way the pandemic and the people who are affected by it will make people think differently about the issues on the table that are going to come up in front of the court? Well, I do think that's clearly the disability community is going to expand with this whole new group of people. One of the things that really bothers me is this huge rush to restart the economy at all costs, you know, and you know, who cares about essential workers, who cares about like, the most sort of unprotected people, people with the least access to you know, protective equipment. You know, I think this is, I don't want to get back to normal. Even for myself, I don't feel safe. You know, I think a lot of people before the pandemic didn't feel safe to begin with. And it's, it's just, this pandemic is just exacerbated the kind of you know, inequality that exists. Well, Alice, thanks so much for joining us, and I hope that you can come on again. Well, thank you for having me, Fred. That was Alice Wong, founder of CryptoVote and Disability Visibility. Here's this week's dose of good news about voting, entertainment, and more. For the Batwoman fans out there, be prepared to see Javicia Leslie in the upcoming season of the CW show Batwoman. As the first Black woman to play the character, Leslie will be showing off a Batwoman who has natural curly hair with red highlights and a form-fitting suit with red accents. We've been seeing record-breaking lines for early voting, and Joy to the Polls brings beats, dancing, and art to people waiting to cast their vote in Philadelphia. Juice maker Ocean Spray gifted a cranberry red pickup to Nathan Apodaca, the man whose video of longboarding while drinking the company's juice earned millions of views. When regular people go viral with product, they don't always get much for it, and we'll see if we can expect more companies to follow suit. Let's go. See, set, where That's Dolores Huerta, now age 90, leading an auditorium full of people recently in a chant of Si Se Puede. Huerta began her career as an organizer in 1965, advocating for farm workers exploited by California's agricultural industry. And I live here in uh, Bakersfield, California, uh, which is the most conservative county in California. I always like to say that the Kern County, this is pretty much like Selma, Alabama. Si se puede. Technically, it means, yes, it is possible. And in English, it usually gets translated as, yes, we can. Huerta made it famous as she worked alongside Cesar Chavez, her co-founder of the United Farm Workers Union. Huerta fought for women's rights beside Gloria Steinem and was awarded the Medal of Freedom by President Obama in 2000. 
She's also the mother of 11 children. We spoke recently about everything from abortion rights and religion, her advice to young Americans about protesting, and the freedom which lies in the desert. In the movie The Glorias, which is the fictionalized version of Gloria Steinem's life, you're a character. And in the movie, you go to a rally that Phyllis Schlafly is having that's mainly conservative women, and then you go back to Gloria Steinem and say, even though as a Catholic woman you don't support abortion, you felt like your home was with the feminist women. I wonder if that was an accurate depiction in the movie. As someone who's had 11 children and as someone who, you know, someone who appears to have a very strong connection to your faith, how do you process something like abortion rights now? I should say thanks to Gloria Steinem, but I have to also add Eleanor Smeal, uh, who is the president of the Feminist Majority Foundation, that helped me make that transition, uh, the transition to understand that abortion is not a sin, that we have to look at science. And I, it, it took me a while to do that because as a Catholic, you know what the teachings are, that uh, you know that abortion is a mortal sin. And this is really dangerous, I think, for women uh, to be caught in, in that mindset, in that, I'm going to call it also a mind trap, you know, uh, because what it does, it really deters us. And once women understand that their body is theirs, that nobody has a right to decide uh, what is going to happen with their body but themselves, I think this is the important thing. And yes, women should not vote their religion. And I love to quote uh, the president of Mexico, Benito Juarez, who said this. He said, respecting other people's rights is peace. So if I choose to have 11 children, if my daughter Juanita chooses to have dogs instead of kids, okay, <laughs> that is her choice, you know, and I should not interfere with her choice and we should not interfere with other people's lives. And the same thing goes with our LGBT community. If somebody falls in love with somebody of the same sex, it's none of your business. It doesn't affect your life or your family. So we have to respect other people's rights to make the choices that they need to make for their lives and for their families. I'm someone who has never been physically assaulted by law enforcement, but I understand that at age 58, while you were protesting, an officer with a baton broke four of your ribs and shattered your spleen. How did that experience affect how you think about risk today? And how would you talk to someone like my goddaughter, who's a teenager and who goes to protest, and how do you think about physical risk? Well, I had been arrested many times before I was beaten by the police, so I didn't really have a fear of police like I do now. Now when I see a police person, right away my body reacts, you know, I start getting anxiety, and I guess it's like what they call the post-traumatic syndrome that people suffer, but it did not affect my willingness to go out there and protest or to be active. Uh, I very much am, uh, firmly believe in the philosophy of nonviolence. And we know that when you get out there that you are taking some risk, but that should not prevent us uh, from being out there. And so I just want to celebrate all of the people that have been on the protest. I myself have not been on the protest, not because I'm afraid, like because I have been on, I guess, hundreds of protests since I was beaten back in 1988, uh, but just simply because of the pandemic and because of my age. And I, you can imagine to me, it's like a punishment not to be out there to be protesting. 
A friend of mine said that she saw you at Burning Man one year. I've been many times, and I don't know if it was you, but did you go? Oh, yes, I've been to Burning Man four times. <laughs> and, what? And it had it not been for the pandemic, I would have been at Burning Man this year. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So what um, what motivated you to come back? Well, I think Burning Man is like the world that we would like to see, where everybody is on an equal plane, uh, where you don't have money exchanged except for, what is it, coffee and lemonade and ice. You know, otherwise it's a, it's a free society. You are free to be whoever you want to be, and everybody is respectful of everybody else. Oh, my God. Yes, Burning Man is so beautiful. Yes, it would be nice if the world took on some of the attributes and the policies of Burning Man. Well, on that note, I hope to see you on the playa next year. Dolores Huerta, thank you for everything you've done for the world and just for being you. And I just want to tell everybody, please don't forget to vote. We are at a critical point in our country. And on November the 3rd, we have a a chance to change it. That was Dolores Huerta joining us from her home in Central California. Our Body Politic is presented and syndicated by KCRW, KPCC, and KQED. It's produced by Lantigua Williams & Co. I'm the creator and host, Farai Chidea. Juleka Lantigua Williams is executive producer. Paulina Velasco is senior producer. Cedric Wilson is lead producer and mixed this episode. Original music by Kojin Tashiro. Our political bookers are Mary Knowles and Melanie Ganim. Michelle Baker and Emily Daly are assistant producers. Production assistants from Mark Betancourt, Michael Castaneda, and Virginia Laura. Funding for Our Body Politic is provided by Craig Newmark Philanthropies and by the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, empowering world-changing work.